Well, good morning, once again. Good to be with you. We are trying to kill two birds with this one stone, and hopefully we can make it work. Uh, We're continuing our study of loving your neighbor, but we're also wrapping up the new members class. And I think a fruitful way to do that is going to be to look in the book of Hebrews, chapter 13. Hebrews, chapter 13. And we are simply going to read Hebrews 13, verse 1, and have a word of prayer. And then we're going to go a little bit deeper into what's happening in Hebrews chapter 13. But as we begin, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Let's pray. (coughs) Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ and His work in redeeming us from our sins that we might reign together with Him. We thank you also that you have joined all of us who have faith in the Lord Jesus into your family, that we are now brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, O Lord, that you would help us to understand what it means to let brotherly love continue, both in our families and in the church. And we pray all of this for Jesus' sake. Amen. So to review a little bit, we uh, last week started talking about loving your neighbor, and we had to set this in its context. And we spoke about man and what was written upon man's heart. So first off, last week, to review, what is man? Who remembers? Man is the image of God. The image of God. Very good. And because he's the image of God, he has something inscribed upon his heart. Say it again. The law of God. Sometimes called, just at this stage, when we talk about man in the image, it's the natural law. The natural law. When Christ was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He answered and said, the greatest commandment is what? Love the Lord your God. Very good. Love God. And then he says the second commandment. Loving thy neighbor. Very good. Yeah. Love. We can just, for the sake of not having to put more of my bad handwriting up here, we'll just say man. So, the summary of God's law, the summary of our morality is to love God and to love man or love our neighbor. Now, we also talked about how this was in the image of God, but what happened to Adam and Eve? They sinned. They fell. And this was obscured in man's heart. It's not completely removed. Because if we remove this, then man would cease to be man. We would just be well-dressed monkeys. It's obscured. And so God reissued His law where? 
He reissues his moral law in the, in the Bible, yes, but I want you to be even more precise. There's a specific piece of stone that was inscribed. Thank you. Yes, the Ten Commandments. So, after the fall, we then have the Ten Commandments. And as the Catechism teaches us, and it's very traditional um, Protestant teaching, the Ten Commandments are in two tables. The first four contain what? Relationship to God, the duty that God, the duty that we owe to God, and five through ten is the duty we owe to man, or in other words, the way that we love our neighbor. One through four teaches you how to love God, and five through ten teaches you how to love your neighbor. Um, just as a, this is a freebie. I, I mentioned that this is traditional Protestant. This is the traditional Protestant order, one through four, and five through ten. In the Roman Catholic Church, they actually divide the commandments differently, and they will say that the. I'm trying to remember how they do it. They split the second commandment in order to make room for their images of Jesus, and so they split the second commandment, saying. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall make no graven image. They say that's all the first commandment. And then the second commandment is you shall not bow down to them. And so, of course, what they're saying is we can make images of the true God if we don't bow down to them. And they split the commandments differently. That doesn't hold water. We won't go too far into that. Yes? Just, just one and a third. Don't they bow down to them anyways? Well, that's the Protestant. That's the Reformer's critique. It's like, well, you're praying to Mary. Like, yeah. Yeah. Don't they have 11 commandments? <laughs> they split the 10th commandment. Thou shalt not covet. And they, what ends up happening is they all get shifted. And then they have to split the 10th to make up for 10. So they put 10 and 9 together? Or? Something like that. Okay. I said it was a freebie, so let's not <laughs> spend any more time on it. <laughs> um, so, what this teaches us then... The Ten Commandments are the moral law, or the law that was written on the heart of man. The order of the Ten Commandments is not accidental either. And as we move into talking about loving our neighbor, we're going to start by using the Fifth Commandment as the narrow context within which we love our neighbor. Uh, the larger catechism, this is in questions, you don't have it, don't, don't worry. Uh, the larger catechism, 122 through 126, expounds what the fifth commandment is about. I'll summarize it this way. We're going to look at the catechism, but, but I want to summarize it and, and kind of um, get your get your radar working. As we talked about in the first lesson, sometimes this notion of loving your neighbor is used as a way to talk about the Christian life simply as 
doing good things. And it's, it's never more fully defined than you, you just got to love your neighbor. But there's never any more definition or clarity on what this actually means. One of the other problems that we have in today's church and society is solved by the fifth commandment. And the problem that we have in our society can be expressed in two ways. Our society, broadly speaking, is egalitarian and individualistic. Now, let me explain these $4 words. Um, egalitarian, I'm not talking anything about the genders or the sexes. That's, that's not what I'm talking about. When we say that modern society is egalitarian, the assumption is that everybody in society, everybody in the church, everybody in the family is on the same level. We're all equals in every single particular. Now, we are all equal in that every human being is made in the image of God. And so, your father is in the image of God, as well as your newborn grandchild. They are both equal on that plane. However, we know that your grandfather and your child are unequal in what way? What's one way that your grandfather and a newborn baby are not equal? Age, Age is a very obvious one. Wisdom, Wisdom we pray. That, that is uh, true. Um, height, weight. Somebody says something else. Authority. Authority also. They are not equal when you think about that feature. Egalitarianism, though, says all men are equal in every single aspect. Secondly... We're an individualistic society, and what this means is that our society assumes that what makes you, or what defines you, only comes from you. It understands all of us as discrete individuals, unconnected to others, and that's all that matters about who you are. You simply are you. You're an individual. These are assumptions in our society that govern what most people think it means to love our neighbor. Because what happens when we assume these two things? Well, my neighbor is anybody who's around me, and my neighbor is just like me. My neighbor is exactly as I am. My neighbor has no more authority over me than I do over him. Or, I don't owe anything else to my neighbor than what he owes to me. We're all individuals. We're all equal. The same relations obtain for everyone. That's what this assumption produces. It produces confusion then produces a lot of confusion in society. And we're going to see Hebrews 13 and the fifth commandment 
why this is. So let's look at the fifth commandment as the Westminster Confession helps us understand it. First, what is the sum of the six commandments which contain our duty to man? The sum of the six commandments which contain our duty to man is to love our neighbor as ourselves and to do unto others what we would have them do to us. We've talked about that. Now they descend even further into what this means. What is the fifth commandment, or which is the fifth commandment? The fifth commandment is, Honor thy father and mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Who are meant by mother and father in the fifth commandment? By father and mother in the fifth commandment are meant not only natural parents, but all superiors in age and gifts, especially such as by God's ordinance are over us in place of authority, whether in family, church, or commonwealth. Now notice what they've done there. In the answer to that question, they have highlighted the three general spheres of human society. Family is the very beginning of our relationships as men. You are born, and you have mom and dad, maybe the siblings, and that's the beginning of human society. The next is the church. The church is another realm of how men are organized together, how we relate to one another. And then finally, it's the commonwealth, the magistrate, the state, the civil society. Why are superiors styled father and mother? Superiors are styled father and mother both to teach them in all duties toward their inferiors like natural parents to express love and tenderness to them according to their several relations and to work, in, uh, to work inferiors to a greater willingness and cheerfulness in performing their duties to their superiors as to their parents. This is the last one I'll read, 126. What is the general scope of the fifth commandment? The general scope of the fifth commandment is the performance of those duties which we mutually owe in our several relations as inferiors, superiors, and equals. Now notice what the fifth commandment helps us to do to get away from this. It immediately uses two terms that are very foreign to us that we are very leery of. Superior and inferior. Superior and inferior are inherent in what it means to be a human. Because, if you're like me, you all have parents. And when you entered the world, you entered under the authority of a superior. And you were in the place of the inferior. Likewise, if God blesses you and you stay around long enough, you end up in the place of the superior. You may have children of your own. You may be in control of a company. You may be in a position of authority in some form or fashion. All of us, in one degree or another, in one relation or another, occupy the position of superior, inferior, or equal. They add equal in there. That one's not too difficult for us because we're, we're saturated in this idea of equality. These two are the ones that are very offensive 
to our modern sensibilities. This is important to understand how to love our neighbor. Because, even though all of you are my neighbor, some of you are my superiors, some of you are my inferiors, some of you are my equals, but not all of you occupy the same relation to me that all the others occupy. One of you in the room is my natural mother. The rest of you are not in that relation to me. And so I owe a certain type of love to her, not just as my neighbor, but as my neighbor who is my mother. You see how this works? See how this helps us to love our neighbor properly? So now we turn to Hebrews 14. But before we get there, are there any questions at this point? Questions, comments? Very good. I will uh, say this. Let me put this up so we can see it. Here's another, another scary word um, for you. What the fifth commandment has described and what I've, what I've laid out a little bit is often known as the hierarchy. There is a hierarchy within human society. This is not a bad word. It's just a descriptive word. The hierarchy describes this this whole sort of uh, relationship that men stand in. Superiors, inferiors, and equals. This describes that hierarchy. Okay? Okay. So now we turn to Romans, uh, Hebrews chapter 13. And I think you're going to see that as the author begins to expound, let brotherly love continue, he expounds it along these lines. He follows this framework in how you are to love your neighbor. Let me add one thing about the hierarchy, just just to encourage you um, and to contrast with a little bit of the insanity of our day. One of the other things that happens in an egalitarian and individualistic society, if everybody is equally the same, and everybody is related to you in the same way as everybody else, then that means your personal affections and capacity to love people will be dissipated across the whole swath of humanity. In other words, if my sick child has a certain claim on my affections and attention, and a sick child in the Ukraine has the same claim on my affections and my love, what ends up happening? I can't love either of them properly. So how do we discern the difference? You use the hierarchy. My child is my direct inferior. I owe him the attention first. I can't love everybody equally because, as you may have realized, I am not divine. (laughs) Neither are you. You are limited creatures. And God expects you to love your neighbor within the limited scope of where he's placed you in the hierarchy. So this is 
far from being a scary thing, it's actually an extremely helpful thing so that we can actually serve God where he's placed us. Let's look at Hebrews 13. He says, let brotherly love continue. And then he begins to expound these things. Do not forget to entertain strangers. For by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. He begins sort of at the bottom of the hierarchy. When he says, let brotherly love continue. And he begins, we can think about uh, the human heart, which just means the human person, but I don't want to subject you to my handwriting. Occupying a series of circles. (coughs) You as an individual are in the middle of these circles. These circles represent the bonds of your relationships. And the further out you get, the, the weaker the bonds of those relationships are. So to use the illustration from earlier, you have a sick child in the Ukraine, and I have a sick child in my home. The sick child in my home occupies the closest circle. And so I owe my affections and love to him first. If perchance I have opportunity and I've fulfilled the duties in all of these circles, then I might be able to do something for this one over here. But primarily, we begin on the the level of closeness, the level of proximity, either geographic or familial. That's where the love begins, because those are the ones I'm bound to most closely. So the author here, interestingly, begins... Way out here in the Ukraine. Don't forget to entertain strangers. And now he's going to work his way back into the inner circle. Don't forget to entertain strangers. Uh, Remember prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. Notice as he moves a little bit closer in, he starts out with strangers, people that you have no real relation to, except that they show up at your door. Then he begins to talk about prisoners, and notice what is the reason why you are to remember the prisoners? What's the reason that he gives? You're part of the body. Say it again. You're part of the body. Um, Yes, that can be taken in two ways. I think it it means that you are in the physical body, right? I don't think he's talking about the body of Christ. He is talking about Christian brothers and sisters. But I think his point is, yes? That we as Christians are persecuted. We might assume just like robbers and thieves. Correct. So we have that bond common to them. Exactly right. There's a common bond. However you want to understand what he means by the body. I think, I think what he's primarily getting at is physicality. You have a physical body. You know what it's like to be cold, hungry, in pain. And so there's a bond that connects you to that person. There's a relationship. You are equal to the prisoner in that you both have the body. Therefore, remember them. That bond binds you to a certain type of love toward them. Now he moves even closer. So we've started out here. He moves even closer in. Marriage is honorable among all. And the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. 
Now he moves into the bonds of the family unit. Marriage is, as it were, the uh, soil of every family. Every family starts with a marriage. And however that marriage grows and develops and expands defines the family that came from that marriage. So when he says that marriage is honorable, uh, the, the bed is undefiled. Notice he says fornicators and adulterers God will judge. He's guarding against the destruction of the family unit. The primary thing here is not, I don't think, so much human sexuality. I don't think that's, that's quite the point, although it's related to it. It's at the core of it. What he's talking about is the integrity of a family unit. You see, the great tragedy of adultery is that it destroys families. Some, some, uh, some of the older folks, my superiors in age, might know, I don't know if they still use this phrase, um, but what do you call a woman who seduces a husband? So it's with an H. Well, yeah, there's a lot. I didn't think of that one. That's one. Uh, hussy, yeah, okay. Uh, home wrecker. We call them home wreckers because it destroys this family unit, right? That's what the author is getting at here. That's one of the bonds of society. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Now, covetousness is perhaps happening within the family unit, but it is also something that often happens between equals. If I am on the same level as somebody else, and then he gets a promotion, or he gets a new car, or he gets a new baby, or fill in the blank. Covetousness destroys that relationship. My duty to my equal is to rejoice when he rejoices and to weep when he weeps. It's to sympathize with him in loving him on that same level. Well, he touches on these these kind of relations briefly in the family and the society at large. Now he moves into the church. And this is where we're combining the new members' material as well as loving our neighbor. And now he begins in verse 7. And this whole section is going to go through verse 17. Notice that he says in verse 7, Remember those who rule over you. And then in verse 17, he uses the same term. Obey those who rule over you. The same term is used in both verses. Here's a hint about reading the Bible. When you see that kind of thing, a term, a bunch of stuff, and then the term shows up again, that's a contained unit. That's meant to be looked at together. It hangs together. Um, Some authors will call these kind of things scripture sandwiches. There's the bread of those who rule over you, meat, and on the bottom, those who rule over you. It's one sandwich. It says, remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Now he begins to speak about life within the church. Obviously, what he's going to talk about are are those who are in the church. And he describes those who are superiors over you in the church 
as those who rule over you. But notice how they rule. They rule by speaking the word of God and by setting a godly example for you. This is how those who are in the church are to rule. And to the degree that they do that, the way that you love them, the way that you love them as your neighbor is by remembering them. Later on he's going to say, obey them. Be submissive unto them because they've been put in that position of authority. He goes on to say, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried about with uh, various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited them, who have been occupied with them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach, uh, etc., etc., They move on to talk about the government of the church, and it is summarized in those who have the rule over you, who speak the word of God to you, whose faith is an example to you, are ministering to you the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And in order for you to grow in the grace of the Lord Jesus, because He never changes, it's good for you not to be changing and following all kinds of different doctrines all the time. It's good for the heart to be established by grace. It's good for the heart to be under consistent leadership. Let me put it to you this way. It is good for you to have superiors in the church. It's good for you to have officers in the church because the officers of the church are those that are feeding you upon Christ. They are ministering to you the grace of Christ through the word, but also through the sacraments. Notice what he says in verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. Now what's he talking about in the Christian church? We don't don't have altars anymore. We don't offer up sacrifices anymore. I believe what he's speaking about is the cross of the Lord Jesus, which is the altar upon which Christ was sacrificed. From that altar, we partake through eating. How do we partake of the cross of Christ? In communion. In Holy Communion, we partake of the body and blood of Christ spiritually. Remember what Christ says at the words of institution. This is my broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The supper of communion is a participation in the death of Christ. In the death and resurrection of Christ. And I believe that's what he's talking about. So, in the hands of church officers, you are fed on the doctrine of Christ. You are fed through the sacraments. By faith, spiritually, we're not Roman Catholic, obviously. And then he he goes on to talk about how Christ suffered outside of the gate. Therefore, let us not be afraid to partake of communion. 
He continues on, verse 14, For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Just like chapter 2, the world to come of which we speak. Therefore by him, through Christ, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Now, we need to combine a little bit here about loving our neighbor as well as the new members class. Uh, Joining Grace OPC would bring you into the, the congregation of our membership. And one of the vows that we take in the OPC is the fifth vow, and it says that you, um, oh, I don't have the text in front of me. Um, essentially, you agree to be submissive to the officers of this church and to heed its discipline and government. Uh, you, you agree to be a faithful participant in the worship and work of this church and to heed its government and discipline, even should you be found delinquent. Well, this is what the author of Hebrews is describing, especially when he says, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, which is the fruit of our lips. He also said earlier, let us eat of the altar that Christ opens for us. He also says, remember those who speak the word of God to you. What this means in your life as a Christian is that the officers of this church, we expect you to make every good effort to be at the worship services of this church, morning and evening on the Lord's Day. If you are able, we want you to be there. Now remember what the author of Hebrews is saying. It is good for the heart to be established by grace. It is good to be fed by Christ. In the worship services of the church, Christ opens up the altar of his death and offers to you to partake of his body and blood. Therefore, be there as often as you can. It's for your good. Because in the worship services of the church, the grace of God is manifested to you. We don't do communion every Sunday. We don't do communion every worship service. But the heart and the principle of communion is not the bread and the wine. It's the body and blood of Christ, which is given to you through the word as well as through the sacrament. So this is one of the things that we would expect. One of the other things that uh, you probably saw from the service survey in the bulletin this morning, we use shepherding groups as a way to organize um, our body life and to organize some of the responsibility. And really, in a lot of ways... To help keep this within reason. When you become a member, you'll be assigned to an elder group. If perhaps you've gotten to know an elder. And there is an elder you have more rapport with at this point. We're happy to put you with the guy that you think you would get along with better. At any rate, we would assign you to an elder in group. That elder, you should expect him to be praying for you. Checking up on you. Visiting you from time to time. Um, in addition to the elders' visits and regular checkups, we also do pastoral visits, which is me and your elder coming at the same time for a little bit of a longer uh, time to meet. And that really comes down to what we see in verse 17 of Hebrews 13. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls. I don't know this 
I don't have a Greek text in front of me. I'll bet you watch out for your souls is the same word as, as episkopos. I'm, I'm willing to take a wager. I could be wrong. It might be. They watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable to you. It, it really comes down to this right here. Loving your neighbor within the hierarchy of the church means those who are officers in a position of superiority watch out for your souls as those that must give an account one day. When we stand before the chief shepherd, we will have to give an account for how we shepherded and governed this church. So our love to you as the sheep of Christ is to pray for, to visit, to feed you upon the word of God, to feed you upon the body and blood of the Lord Jesus as it relates to our life in the church. Your love to us then in the relation of inferior to the officer is as the book of Hebrews says here. Be submissive. Uh, They watch out for your souls. Obey them. Be cooperative so that they might oversee you with joy. Be obedient to them when they direct and guide you. Now, this doctrine of the church and church officers has been abused. It is open to abuse. And so the caveat or or the way to define this goes back to verse 7. What does it say about those in verse 7 who rule over you? What do they do? Anybody? Say it again. They speak the word of God. The obedience that you owe to your officers in the church only goes as far as the word of God. The only obedience we expect is obedience in conformity with the word of God. And so it's incumbent upon us to know the word of God and teach it accurately to you. But it's also incumbent upon you when we come to you with scriptural direction to obey it. Primarily because it's from the word of God. But secondarily, this is one of the ways that you show love to your officers. Is by obeying and following their lead. Um, We're coming close to the end. I want to open it up to any questions that anyone might have. Yes, ma'am. Could you go back to verse 10, please? Yes. And explain those who have no right to eat. Yes, very good. When he's, uh, part of the, the problem in the book of Hebrews is you have Jewish Christians, Hebrew Christians, that are suffering persecution for being Christians, perhaps from the Roman Empire, perhaps from their Jewish brothers and sisters, this is a problem because in the context of early Rome, the early Roman Empire, Judaism was a lawful religion. Christianity was an illegal religion. If you, if you read the histories, they'll, they'll use the, ter- the term um, licit and illicit. And that's just a Roman term for legal or illegal. So to be a Christian was not under the cover of Roman sort of law. 
The synagogue had a 501c3. The church did not. To kind of maybe use a modern analogy. I know it doesn't quite relate, but that's kind of what was going on. So the synagogues were protected by Roman government. The churches were not. So the Romans could come down. And so what this meant was that these Jewish Christians were tempted. Let's just go back to the synagogue. It's protected. We won't, we won't suffer like we are as Christians. So when he says those that serve the tabernacle, he's referring to the priests of the Jewish system in Jerusalem. Uh, he's, he's, he's referring to the priests that are still operating under the Old Testament system in the temple of Jerusalem. Probably when Hebrews was written, the temple, the temple was still standing and all of the Jewish ceremonies were still going on. So there was a strong temptation for them to go back to that because they still have the priests. They still have the sacrifices. They still have the altar and the ceremonial meals. When he says that they have no right to eat of the altar of Christ, which is what he's referring to, it means that as long as they refuse to accept Jesus, they cannot partake of the true sacrifice. If they don't believe in Jesus, they don't have access to the the body and blood of the true sacrifice. I know I'm, I'm having to summarize a lot of Hebrews here. Um, turn to chapter 9. Or chapter 10. Pastor, uh, pastor. <laughs> Elder Zare, pastorally, read this to us. In chapter 10, uh, verse, uh, verse 2. Well, the first one, we're going to start in verse one. Um, The law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they continually offer year by year, notice present tense, continually offering, they're still doing this as he's writing, which they continually offer year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered, For the worshippers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins year after year. So the, the Levitical sacrifices are a living, so to speak, reminder that you're still in your sins. You have to offer it this year. Next year, you're going to have to do the same thing. Next year, you're going to have to do the same thing. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats can take away sins. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I've come in the volume of the book to do your will. Keep reading verse 9. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will... We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. One of the the things that Hebrews is teaching is not merely that your sins are forgiven and you're declared righteous, but also through the body and blood of Christ, you are made perfectly holy. And you therefore have the right to commune with God. So he's saying that these Levitical priests are not actually holy because the bulls and goats can't take away sin. But Christ does take away sin. You're righteous 
and you're holy, you get to eat of the altar. Does that help? Okay. It's uh, Admittedly, Hebrews uses very involved terminology that, that really depends on your understanding of the Old Testament. So there's, and this is at the end of the book, so he's, yeah, good. Um, yes, sir? I just wanted to say that people today often see superior and inferior as moral categories, and that's not really what is meant by it. How do you mean, when you said they see them as moral categories? Superior is bad, superior is good. Oh, yes, I see what you mean. Good, good point. Um, it's not that they are moral categories in that sense. Superior and inferior are not, uh, maybe a better way to say it is value judgments. They don't assign any kind of value to the superior or the inferior or the equal. They are simply describing the relationships that we bear to one another. This also not only helps us to love our neighbor, but I'll, I'll close with this because we're getting, we're getting on a little bit. But I want you to, to glory in Christ this afternoon. The reason we know that the hierarchy, it doesn't matter where you fall on that hierarchy. Because you are in the image of God, you are just as valuable as a king who sits on the throne. How do we know this? When the Son of God took on human flesh, where did he arrive in this hierarchy? He was in the inferior of the inferior places. When his parents offered the offering for a newborn in the temple, do you remember what they offered? Doves. Why is that significant? Doves are what the poor man offers. His parents were impoverished. He came in born under the law, born of a woman in abject poverty, all they can offer are two doves to celebrate the birth of their son. So Christ comes into humanity in the lowest position of the hierarchy. So all this is meant to show you is your relations and how you relate to one another and how you ought to love those who are around you. So, Let's close with prayer. If you've got other questions, feel free to come up and we can chat. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your work in our lives and we thank you for your wisdom in placing us in bodies. And that that implies that we owe certain duties to those we are related to and certain other duties of love to those we are related to in a different way. And we pray you would help us to understand these things and to love our neighbor as ourselves, keeping in mind the relations that we bear to our neighbors. We pray also that you would bless the government of this church, especially in um, speaking the word of God on behalf, on, on behalf of the officers and obedience to the word of God in the hands of the officers on the part of the congregation. We ask you to bless us in these things. Bless our Sabbath this day, we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.